started, we were in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we began looking at the final week of Jesus' life. Okay, this is, this is where we are. We've got a ways to go. We still have months we're going to be in this book. But we have entered into the last week of Jesus' life. Really, it's the, it's the culmination of three years of intense ministry for him. And we saw that uh, this final week was kicked off with events that had many people in the crowd uh, really, what, what they were doing is um, they were responding in this very demonstrative and very expressive way to some of the things that he was doing, okay? And he was, they were doing that because they were coming to recognize and they were coming to embrace the fact that he truly was the Messiah. They're, they were kind of like, this is who he is. And so something amazing was happening. Remember we saw that as he approached Jerusalem, he was riding on this young little colt, this little donkey, and many of the people in the crowd, remember what they started to do? They started to take off their cloaks and they were putting them on the ground. Some were taking, cutting down branches of trees and, and they were putting them kind of like a makeshift red carpet, basically. And they were just really excited. And remember they began to shout, Hosanna, or basically they were saying, hallelujah, our Savior is here. He has come. They were really, really excited about about this. And we also saw that after he went in, remember, he went in and cleansed the temple of the people that were basically the, the shady conduct of the commerce that was happening in there. And he got rid of that. And he did that really on, by his authority on who he was. And he began, remember then, we saw that he began healing people. He began healing these blind and lame people. And the cool thing that happened is all of a sudden, remember who started shouting praise to him right when he did that? Children. So first it was adults that were just shouting praise to him and then they were realizing this is who he is. And then all of a sudden he does this and the children began shouting praises. Basically, they were identifying and they were recognizing his messianic authority and his messianic identity. These kids were. So something was happening. Something big was happening. And as we explored this passage two weeks ago, we learned, we, what we learned was the truth that when we come to truly embrace the sovereign authority of Jesus. Remember we talked about what that means? Sovereign authority means his ultimate power and control over and authority over all things. We saw that something amazing happens. When we do this, something amazing happens. When we come to the point where we are allowing every single area of our lives, our hopes and our dreams, our desires and our longings to come under his divine sovereign authority, that the result is going to be from deep down in our soul, what? It was going to be wholehearted praise. We saw that was happening with the people. They just couldn't help it. Remember at one point, the whole town was going, what in the world is going on? Who is this guy that everybody's freaking out and praising him? It had this massive effect as people were recognizing Jesus' divine authority. Well, this week, as we see how Jesus continues to display his sovereign authority, we will see that the results this time are going to result in what meant to, is what to, meant to move us from this wholehearted praise, which is awesome, which is wonderful. It's going to move us from this wholehearted praise to something that takes our relationship with Jesus to a whole nother level. Okay, a whole nother level. Really, our main idea today is that when we come to truly embrace the sovereign rule of Jesus in our lives, the result is not only going to be praise, wholehearted praise, but be wholehearted living out of our faith. When we really start to understand 
this authority that he has, not only in the whole world, but in our, in our lives, and everything we do, we're allowing him to have authority, we can't help but react in praising him, but also wanting to live out our faith wholeheartedly. Now, what I mean by living out our faith wholeheartedly is this completely and genuinely trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he says we will do, he will do, and allowing that truth to determine how we think and behave in all situations. I wanted, that's, that's so powerful. This is, what, this is what I felt like the Spirit was saying this week. This is what it means to live wholeheartedly. Look at that. To completely and genuinely trust in Jesus that he is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do and allow that very truth, allow that truth to determine how we think and behave in all situations. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk every day with that kind of faith? That is amazing. That is amazing. I don't know about you, but I long to have that kind of faith. I long to be able to say, hey, I know who Jesus is. I know who he says he is. I know what he says he's going to do. And you know what? I completely rest in that. I got no, I, I got no worries. I got no cares. I got no fears. <laughs> Man, what would that be like? I long for that. And that's exactly what the enemy tries to keep us from as much as possible. But the cool thing is, you know what? This is exactly what Jesus longs for us to have as well. Jesus longs for us. He knows we struggle with it. He doesn't get down on us for not having it, but he longs for us to have this wholehearted faith that recognizes who he is. I got it. I see who he is. I know what he's going to do. And I totally rest in that. And every decision I make, every thought I have, every action I do lines up with that. He longs for that to be our life. He longs for us to have that more more than we do, way more than we do. Now, obviously, there's no four steps on how to, how to um, have wholehearted faith. There's no, you know, if there was, I would have written a book about it or someone would have written a book about it and we all would have gone, great, we got this down. Yet what we have today, I believe, and we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture today, a long passage today. I believe that in today's text, there are really four indicators or really four road signs that can help us to know that we are at least on the road to having wholehearted faith as we embrace this Jesus' divine authority in our lives. Now, you know me, I don't like to do like point one, point one, at all these points, but this is kind of how this kind of laid out, and we're going to look at it a lot. And like I've told you before this morning, here's what I would ask. There's going to be a lot this morning. I would just ask that you ask the Spirit to teach you one thing. One thing. At this conference I was at, I was at a breakout session, and the guy broke the news to all of us pastors and said that people remember at most 7% of what they hear. 7%. So, I'm begging you. <laughs> no, I'm asking you that it makes sense that we would not feel like, okay, I got to remember everything that's said. No, I don't expect you to remember everything that's said this morning. But thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit that leads us and teaches us and guides us that hope that I would ask that you would pray into yourself as this goal, we go along here, that he would reveal just one thing, one thing to you that would help you to have wholehearted faith. So let's dive right in. We're going to start looking, and we're going to start looking at right away, first at this peculiar incident between Jesus and a tree. 
Okay, here we go. Verses 18 to 20, we are in Matthew chapter 20. What are we at again? Matthew, we are in Matthew chapter 21, and we're 18 to 46, actually. We're going through the whole rest of the chapter. So look at verses 18 and 20 first. It says, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. This is Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing in it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? So remember, we talked about this. Remember, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem right now. It's packed with people because the enormous crowds, because of the celebration of the Passover. So Jesus' disciples have been staying nearby in the town of Bethany, just outside of uh, Jerusalem. So in the morning, they're going to head back in to the town, okay? They head back into Jerusalem. And on the way, we see that Jesus gets hungry. There was no McDonald's to get a McGriddle or anything along the way there. So he's hungry. And back then you just got food wherever, wherever you could get it. So he sees this fig tree along the side of the road. And it says it's full of leaves, which meant that back then that's a sign that there should be fruit. It should have tons of fruit on it, on it as well. This tree, though, didn't seem to have anything on it. Um, it, it. When he gets goats, he finds that it has nothing. There's nothing on it except lots of leaves. And what's happening here is that it, what happens is actually it's too early for fig trees to be blooming. There should, at this time of the year that this is happening, there shouldn't be figs. There should not be figs on any fig trees. They shouldn't be bearing fruit. But this tree kind of was kind of faking them out a little bit. It had all these leaves, but no fruit actually on it. So what does Jesus do? <laughs> he pronounces a curse. He curses the tree for crying out loud. I wish I could do that at the supermarket, go to the produce aisle, you know, and not terrible bananas, you know, and take care of those. But that's what he does. He curses this tree. And then we see the disciples are absolutely kind of like blown away that right away this thing withers up. It goes so fast. Like what a strange thing, huh? This is a strange scene. Doesn't it? it seems like Jesus is overreacting, doesn't it? Kind of seems like he's being a baby, you know, with a lot of power. You know, what's wrong? I, I, he just couldn't get any fruit out. What's going on here? Why does he seem to be so vindictive to this helpless fig tree? Something's got to be going on. Something is going on. There's a reason for this. Well, the truth is that it's not that Jesus was upset because he couldn't get food. It's not like Jesus was, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm hangry. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to curse this thing. And I'm gonna be mad. That's not what was happening at all here. He actually curses this fig tree in order to give his disciples a visual example of what was happening in Israel at that time. You see, like this green, leafy, full tree, it was like Israel. From the outside, they looked fruitful. They had this, remember we talked about that temple? It was beautiful. It was one of the wonders of the world at the time. They had all these ceremonies and all that stuff. It looked fruitful. Yet spiritually, they were absolutely barren. The leaders, along with all the people, were simply going through religious motions at that time. Not true, they weren't truly worshiping God with their lives. And what Jesus is doing here, he's calling out the hypocrites. He's calling those, the people out, especially the leaders here, that look fine on the outside. They look great spiritually. They're looking good. Yet their lives are absolutely spiritually fruitless. A lot of religious activity, yet lacking in sincerity. A lot of leaves, no fruit. 
You know, the truth is that I think we, we could all agree that this is actually a warning for us as well today. It really is. This, this scripture really applies to us today. Because you think about how easy it is to do and say the things that can make us look like we're fruitful, right? I'm doing all the things that fruit and fruit, I'm living this fruitful life that we're living lives that are characterized by ongoing repentance, holiness of life, and genuine faith. That's what fruitfulness looks like. It's easy to make that, to look like that. You know, we can attend church. We can be there all the time. When the doors of the church are open, I don't know about you, but when I was young, the doors of the church were open a lot. Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, all these other, so you were there. That's just what, that's just what you did. So we can go to church regularly. We can go to weekly Bible studies. We can even pray and read our Bibles all the time, all the time. Yet in and of themselves, these activities don't make us faithful followers of Jesus. In and of themselves, they don't do this. And notice, did you see what happens to this tree, by the way? This tree that's faking it, kind of? This tree that looks like it's bringing fruitful? What happens to it? It withers. It dies. It becomes absolutely useless. What a picture of trying to be what's not really happening on the inside. So the principle that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us with this tree, what could it be? What's he trying to tell us? Why did he curse this? Well, the answer is found in the next couple of verses. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, and Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will, be not, only, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Can you open that door in the back? I'm starting to feel a little heat, but that just, I'm always feeling a lot of heat in here. So what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples is that for the nation of Israel back then, for Israel back then, and for us now, the time for going through the religious motions is over. He said, I want it to stop. You don't need to, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm looking for at all. It's time, it's over. The time for having lots of leaves and no fruit is over. And really, I believe that this is a message for the American church, isn't it? Stop having so much leaves. Stop having your conferences. Stop having all this great stuff. Stop working so hard to make everything look so great and look so good and talk about all this stuff, but be absolutely barren. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the message for us. Now is the time for faith, he's saying. Faith in Christ alone. Faith that as we, as we saw back in chapter 17, remember, it's like a mustard seed. Humble, dependent faith on Jesus. It's, it's faith that expects everything from him and nothing from our own religious efforts. I think that's why people burn out a lot of times in Christian faith. God, I've been doing so much. Don't you see how hard I've been working? I've actually had a quiet time 19 times in a row. Where's the fruit? Because, and we wonder why we're frustrated. It's because we're looking at the religious activity to be the thing that's supposed to bear fruit in our lives. Instead of the, the relationship with Christ, the learning to what it means to have a fruitful life, which we're going to be looking at. It's so easy. Isn't it an easy trap? I know it is for me. It's a very easy trap to fall into. into. 
So this is our, this is our first way. So our first way that embracing Jesus' divine authority in our lives results in this wholehearted living out our faith is this. It's faith that is confident in God's power and his willingness to answer our prayers. Okay? Wholehearted living out our faith, faith that is truly fruitful, that is bearing fruit, trust that God can and wants to answer our prayers. Now, you say, God, Rob, I know that. But do we really know that? Do we really believe that God can and wants to answer our prayers? Remember John, 1 John chapter 5 says this great familiar verse about this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. This is the confidence. This is what we can know for sure. That if we ask anything according to his will, he might hear, no, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, we know we're not talking about the prosperity gospel. We're not talking about that stuff. What he says here, we pray according to God's will, according to his will, which we're going to look at in a minute. We can be confident. We can know. What a fantastic promise. Let me encourage you to ask the Lord for the kind, this kind of faith. We always wonder, why don't I have that kind of faith? A lot of you remember the Bible says, you have not because you what? You ask not. You don't ask. So he's saying, ask for, we need to ask for this. Ask to kind of have the faith that's confidence going, yes, I want, God, I want to believe that you want to answer my prayer and that you can and then you will. We need to ask for that because our human nature goes a different direction with that. So now we're going to see that Jesus, he arrives back in Jerusalem now and he enters the temple and he's going to, he's going to be confronted by these religious leaders who really have a beef with what went on the other day, what we talked about two weeks ago. They're not happy about what, what happened, what went down. I mean, remember this royal procession that Jesus was a part of, uh, the holy tirade that he kind of went on in the, in the temple, uh, the healing of the blind men and him um, not being willing to silence the little kids when they were like saying, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah. They're not happy about this. So look at verses 23 in the first part of verse 25. It says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you'll tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So these religious leaders want to know, by what authority did Jesus do all that he just did yesterday? What authority did you do that? Who do you think you are? Show us your credentials. We want to know, what authority did you do all that? You, you, you caused quite a ruckus in town yesterday. We want to know what authority you did that. Yet we see here that to their question, Jesus refuses to give them a direct answer. Instead, he poses a question to them. He asks them, where did John's, where did the John's baptism come from? Where did the authority that he had to baptize people, where did it come from? Was it from God or was it from man? Now, it might seem in some ways that Jesus is dodging the question, huh? Like our, like our kids would do. Hey, why did you do that? Well, you know, hey, let's talk about... No. We think that he's dodging a question, but that's not what he's doing. The truth is that his question has everything to do with answering their question to him. Everything to do about it. 
If you remember back in chapter 11, we looked at how in the Old Testament, it was prophesied, it was told that John the Baptist, he was a prophet. He was a prophet that was chosen by God to proceed and prepare the way for Jesus. Remember? He was he's kind of this, this Elijah figure there that they talk about. If you come from the Jewish faith, you understand how powerful that is to understand the Elijah figure was, is going to precede Christ. So he, this was no small thing that John was uh, chosen to do. What Jesus is doing is proving his authority instead of saying, oh, he did it by, he did it by human, uh, by divine means. Don't worry about it. I, I got the right answer. No. He goes right to scripture. He, ta- he reality is that John the Baptist, he takes his, proves his authority, not just on the basis of what he says, but he's taking them back to scripture. Once again, this is how important the word is. He's taking it back to scripture, the infallible word. The reality is that John the Baptist and Jesus received their authority from the same source. It was the same place. Yet what, what we're seeing here is that Jesus' question actually put these, puts these religious leaders in quite a dilemma. Okay? He asked them a question back, and they're like, uh, uh, look, what, look, what, look what happens in the second part of verse 25 through 27. He says, and then they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all, they all hold John as was a prophet, as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see the dilemma these guys are in? These, these guys, either way how they answer this, they're going to come out looking bad. They, they have no good answer to give here. Either they outright deny that, John's, uh, that John did not have authority. They deny his obvious authority. Or they deal with the wrath of the crowd by, by, who believe that John, he did have divine authority. So what do they do? Punt. They just punt. They punt. We don't know. We don't know. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not going to go there. So they're left without an answer from Jesus to their question. He doesn't, he doesn't give me. So really what this does, this gives us the second way that embracing Jesus' divine authority in our lives results in wholehearted living out our faith by always fighting the temptation to challenge his authority. Fighting the temptation to challenge his authority. Now, how might we do that? How might you and I challenge the Lord's authority in our life? Well, really... Simply, we do it whenever we question or doubt what Jesus has said about himself in the, in the scriptures. Anytime we doubt it, we question it, that is exactly what we're doing. Whenever we question his infallibility, his faithfulness, or his judgment, we are ultimately challenging his authority just like the religious leaders did. So how do we fight that temptation? How do we fight the temptation to to challenge his authority by not necessarily believing it or saying, no, that's for somebody else or, you know, or only if this happened, then I'll believe that about him. How do we, how do we fight that, that temptation? Well, really the best, there's really one way to do that. We do it by regularly asking the Lord to help us to truly, fully trust that he is who he says he is and that we be faithful to do what he says he will do. I know this sounds elementary. One other thing that the, at this pastor's conference I was at, he said, one of, the, one of the guys got up there and said, listen, it's not your job as a pastor to give all this new information to people. 
It's your job to remind them of the truth. This is a great reminder of basic truth here. I think we, since we've been Christians a while, we assume, yeah, I believe that he is who he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. But then when life starts to play out, and the way we react to life situations, especially when life goes sideways, do we really believe that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he'll do? That's why this is a great mantra, if you were, to have on a regular basis in our lives. Get up every morning, once a week, whenever, and just pro- say it out loud. Say it to us, I believe you are who you say you are. So when we say those kinds of things, they combat the thoughts that would have been milling around in our head, in our mind for so long that, hmm, maybe this Christian thing, we're not saying this, but in our heads, this Christian thing isn't working out like I thought it would or it should. But when we say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you will do what you say you're going to do. That speaks power. That speaks power into our life. That's a powerful, powerful truth. So we need to be be doing that. We need to fight that temptation by saying that kind of things. Now, just because these guys punt, just because these guys don't answer doesn't mean that Jesus is through with them, okay? You know how Jesus doesn't say, okay, we're done with that. No, he's going to use, he's going to keep going here, okay? He will now, through the, he's going to use two parables, okay? Two parables to give two more indicators or road signs that can help us to know that we're on the road uh, to wholehearted faith. Let's look at the first one. The first one is in verse, we're going to start with it in verse 28, okay? It says this, what do you think? I mean, he doesn't, even, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even stop. He just says, I want to talk to you about something. He just goes, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first son and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, and he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, to the, same, said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. So the parable, that Jesus, from this parable, Jesus is asking these religious leaders, which one of these guys did what their father, the will of the Father? Which one truly did it? And the correct answer was the first. Because although even though he said, no, I'm not going to do it, no, he still eventually came, okay, I'm going to do it. So he actually did do that. He changed his mind and did it. Now the religious leaders are probably feeling like, ha anyway, we got one right. We're probably feeling pretty good. Okay, we're feeling, we're feeling good about this whole thing. Got the right answer. Yet without even knowing it, their answer actually provides Jesus with the opportunity to point out their lack of obedience to God. Look at verses 30. Look at the second part of verse 31. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, and this is big, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I'm sure that went over great. Uh, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe in him. See what Jesus is doing here? What what he's doing is implying here that the Jewish leaders, like the second son, although they claim to be obedient, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go do that. Although they claim to be obedient, they aren't. They're not living in obedience. They're failing because they did not, they failed to believe that John was who John said he was and believe his message of repentance and see his life of righteousness. They just 
said, no way, that's not, that's not true. In truth, the reality is these religious leaders, the people in charge of the religious faith of the entire nation, were actually being completely disobedient to God. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, which you got to understand, these were viewed by the religious leaders as the most despised, sinful, ick people in society. Okay? They were the worst of the worst. She says, they are like the first son who by their immoral lives initially said, no, I will not, basically. I will not to God. Yet as a result of John the Baptist coming along and preaching this message and showing them a righteous lifestyle, they in turn, many of them said, yes, okay, you're right, I get it. Remember the crowd that followed Jesus? We often think that the crowd that's going to follow Jesus or the crowd that's going to follow the big leaders or the crowd that's going to follow our faith and our Christianity is really become popular when we get all the right people and we get the people that look good and the people, the, the athletes, the stars, the people with the great voices, no offense, the people with all the, that is what is going to turn the tide. <clears throat> Who's the first? Man. What a different, what an upside down kingdom, huh? What a different way of saying things. It's not like this at all. He says, they're the first ones again. They're like the first son. They, they say no, but eventually they come to realize what the truth is. And this gives us the third way that embracing Jesus' divine authority in our lives results in wholehearted living out our faith. It's by doing the will of the Father doing the will of their father. See, to Jesus, verbal faith is not wholehearted faith. I mean, we can say all the things out of our mouth that sound like we're like, I am all in God. But what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that wholehearted faith is doing faith. Okay? Doing meaning that as we acknowledge Jesus's authority in our life, and we say, yes, your authority in my life, we act on that authority by doing God's will. You see, these, these religious leaders thought that they were doing God's will by, oh, we're keeping all the ceremonies, we're making sure everybody does all the right stuff, we're, we're obeying the laws, we're all doing that stuff. They thought they were, but Jesus says that they were only going through the religious motions. That's all that was happening. Remember a few chapters back uh, when Jesus said this? He said that not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually what? Do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. I've said this a whole bunch of times, and I, just, I, just, I think it's just going to be so fascinating we are going to be so fascinated and blown away by who is and who isn't in heaven. I think this is going to be an amazing, like, you're here? What? Where's so-and-so? I thought for sure. They'd be at the front of the line. Oh, that's what Jesus is getting at here. That is what he is saying. So how do we make sure that we're doing the will of our heavenly father? Well, really, first and foremost, it's by spending time in the place that his will is revealed to us. I think we forget this. What, God, what's your will for me? What's your will for me? The first and foremost way to find out what God's will is for you to spend time in the place where it is revealed, his word. Now, obviously, a Bible is not going to say, go buy that house. Retire then. Go buy that car. Marry that person. The Bible's not going to say that. That's not how it works. But let me tell you what it does do. Let me tell you what the Bible does do. And I've even written it down up on a slide. 
so you can see it. God's word renews our minds so that our thinking is shaped and governed in a way that allows us to better understand the mind of Christ and in turn be able to discern how God is calling us to live. That's what God's word does. It has an impact on our thinking. It changes our way of thinking. It changes our mind and helps us to see then how to act. What better reason do we need to be in God's word on a regular basis than that? We don't need to, you don't, we don't need to be like, you didn't do your quiet time today? What's your problem? No, we need to be thinking, if I want to have my mind shaped in a way that helps me to understand and govern in a way that allows me to understand how Christ wants me to live. Why wouldn't I be in it on a regular basis? Why wouldn't I be reading it, listening to it, in a Bible, whatever we can do to be in God's Word. Now, this isn't a thing to make us feel guilty. I don't spend a lot of time in the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I think we're saying, what we're saying here is just we want to know the mind of Christ so that we can do what pleases Him, so we can live the life He wants us to live. Be in His Word. Figure out a way to spend, if you spend no time in God's Word, figure out a way to spend five minutes a day, three minutes, something, anything in God's Word. I, I know for me it's really hard. I have to really discipline myself to be in God's Word. I've got to now where I'm listening to it. I listen to it through the, my Bible app, and that seems to work better for me right now. But whatever it takes, get a Bible plan, get the little daily breadcrumbs, our daily bread, you know, a little daily bread book, you know, whatever, to be in God's word. If you're commuting, listen to God's word. If you're on a walk, listen to God's word. If you got a few minutes, spend some time in God's word. Ask him to reveal himself. That is how it works. That's the only way you're going to know God's will. That's the only way. People think, pray for me. I want to know what we should do in this situation. Really? Okay, I'll pray for you. I don't, we would never say this. I'll pray for you. But are you seeking to have the mind of Christ? Are you seeking to have the mind of Christ? Because I can pray for you all you want. It's going to have no impact. We need, to do, we need to be willing to figure out what is God's will for us. And like I said, it's not this guilt trip, oh, I got to spend hours. No. Figure out how to be in God's word on somewhat regular basis, and it will change everything. All right, let's look at the second parable. All right, this is a long one. Verses 33 to 41. We're just going to read through a big chunk here. Okay, here another parable. So Jesus just keeps going here. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent the other servant more than the he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, "They'll respect my son." But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill and have his inheritance." Like that would really happen. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, 
Oh, he will, he will put those, wretch, those wretches to a miserable death and let, them out, let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give, the fr- give him the fruits of their season. So let me just summarize this real quick, what's going on here uh, in this parable. The master of the house, the, this landowner represents God who planted this vineyard, okay? Took this care to plant this vineyard, which represents the kingdom of God, this spiritual rule and reign over our hearts as we submit to him. It's, it's this supposed to be this place of a fruitful covenant relationship with God, okay? And he trusts this place to tenant farmers, and these tenant farmers represent the religious leaders of Israel, okay? Yet instead of leading the people in a way that would actually produce fruit of a life of repentance and things that obedience and righteousness, they have chosen to be greedy and irresponsible with what was given them. So when God, the landowner, sends his servants, which represents the Old Testament prophets that came to help to, to find, keep them accountable for what they were doing, they not only abuse and kill them, they ultimately really in a ploy to free themselves from any ties of the landowner, they kill the landowner's son. And we can know who that represents, right? They kill Jesus as well. Now, even though Jesus didn't say it this way, he didn't say it like I just said it, everybody knew that this story had a spiritual point to it. Everybody, okay, there's, there's a spiritual point here. What could it possibly be? So to get to the point, to get to that point, Jesus asked the religious leaders what the landowner will do. What will he do to these tenants? Okay, instead of just saying it, he brings them in, okay? And they say, that listen, they're going to pay for their crimes. They need to, the death penalty, okay? And the land, lease it to new people. Give, lease it to people that will be faithful, and they will give the landowner the fruit that, that he deserves. Good answer. <laughs> but again, again, without knowing it, their answer implicates them in their rejection of Jesus' identity and authority. They do it again to themselves, along with their own rebellion. Without knowing it, they've actually described the judgment that's ultimately coming to them. It's amazing. Now, Jesus delivers the punchline here. He really goes for it of this parable. Look at verses 42 to 46. He says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls in any way, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived, no kidding, that he was speaking about them. You got that right. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Wow. We could, I mean, this is a whole sermon, this, this whole passage, but we're wrapping things up here. It says, really, in his reply, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 here, which originally spoke of the nation of Israel, yet Jesus implies this pro- applies this promise to himself, okay? 
What he's proclaiming is that he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And the consequences, oh, we could get into that, what it's talking about here, the stone that the builders rejected, falling, crashing, oh, oh, oh my gosh. It's huge. What he's basically saying is it's devastating consequences for rejecting Jesus, especially when it comes to the final judgment. It's going to be devastating. It's not going to be any small thing. It's going to be huge. Okay, then Jesus goes on to link the answer that the religious leaders gave concerning the fate of the vineyard tenants to them by saying the kingdom will not belong to them any longer. It will not belong to you. You will be replaced. It'll be inherited by those with wholehearted fruit producing faith. Now, he's not saying he's taking away from Israel not saying that at all. What he's saying is he's taking away from people that are fakers, people that are looking like they're producing fruit, but they're not. And this is the final one. In other words, the final way that embracing Jesus' defined authority in our lives results in wholehearted living out our faith means producing what Jesus called kingdom fruit. Kingdom fruit. What does that look like? What does kingdom fruit look like? It's simple. It's really simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Kingdom fruit is simply thoughts and behaviors that look like Jesus. That's kingdom fruit. Thoughts and behavior that looks like Jesus. You guys, fruitful living means becoming more like Jesus and helping other people do the same. That's what it means to be a fruitful follower of Jesus, to have fruitful faith, okay? I'm doing everything to come, become more like Jesus, and then I'm doing everything I can to help others do the same. It's not supposed to be complicated. It's not supposed to be a whole bunch of rituals. It's not supposed to be a whole bunch of rules. The enemy will do that to us, make us think we got to do this, do that. No, no. It's becoming more like Jesus and helping other people to come like Jesus. Thoughts and behaviors look like Jesus. So we see the religious leaders aren't exactly thrilled about this. They would love to arrest him, but they can't. He's too popular. They know that that would not be a good thing. So what do we do with this? What's the implications for us here? We've seen different things here that realize that these are the things I need that are indicators, road signs, if you will, that help us know that we're living, we have a wholehearted faith. Well, the bottom line is this. When we as followers of Jesus and I said this last week even, when we embrace his divine authority in our lives, when we come to embrace that, when we come to the point where we are allowing every area of our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our longings to come under his sovereign control and authority, the result is going to be wholehearted living out our faith. It's a faith that is completely and genuinely, it completely and genuinely trusts that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And like I said, that in turn will determine how we think and how we behave in all situations, people may, we, may we, I want this so bad, where we never stop being in awe, in awe of God's sovereign authority, of the sovereign authority of Jesus, his, how amazingly over everything that he is, and the tremendous impact that recognizing that authority has on every area of our lives.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for your word. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus and the awesome, awesome, sovereign authority that is found in him. It's authority that we can, with ease, knowing that we will be loved and cared for without any fear, place every area of our lives under, Father. So I pray for all of us here this morning, including myself, that we desire, those of us that desire to have wholehearted faith, to live out our faith wholeheartedly. Help us to not get caught in the rules. Help us not get caught in legalism, in religion. Help us to recognize who you are and what you can do and how much you love us and want to lavish grace and goodness on us. May we have that kind of week where we reflect on that stuff, especially as the enemy speaks the whispers those lies in our ear that we're not yours and that you're not who you say you are. May we rest on your sovereign authority. In Jesus' name, amen.